Hello and welcome. It's This Is Going Well, I think, with David Cooper. I'm David Cooper. This is the only show where I say some bullshit at the beginning and then I get on with it. Our guest today, science educator, evolutionary biologist, Dr. Daniel K. Riskin, PhD. He's coming on to tell us about some science stories and, well, shoot the shit. This is the last time this year I will be seeing Dan, so enjoy this episode, and we'll be back with him sometime in January. Not me, though. I will be back with this show next week. Oh, and happy Friday. What does that sound like? Sounds amazing. Wow, you you sound fantastic. Well, thanks. 76 trombones. Is it 76 or is it 106? Oh, you're asking the wrong person about trombone numbers. I don't know. I think it's, I don't know, trombone. It's from The Music Man, right? Oh, again, I don't know, The Music Man. I, is that a musical? Yeah, it's a musical. I saw it with uh, Hugh... Um, Hugh Grant. Hugh Laurie. Jackman? Hugh Jackman. Which Hugh? I, that's a good question. Hugh Hugh Jackman. Hugh Jackman. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's, a, that's the kind of thing that happens when you live in New York. This is what I don't get in Toronto. I get to see Gino Vanelli, you know, perform in a McDonald's commercial or something like that. Hugh Grant. It was Hugh Grant. Hugh, how did you mix up Hugh G- Wolverine for Hugh Grant? How did you mix those two Hughes up? That's a huge mix up. <laughs> Look, I, it's the name, not the face, not the person. I just, it's like I live at um, close to an intersection in New York and I always get Houston and Bowery mixed up. Mm. But I know Houston runs east west and I know Bowery runs north south. And so when I say Bowery to mean Houston, I know the street I'm saying. Like I didn't get the streets mixed up visually in my mind's eye. I just got the word mixed up. That's what happened with the Hughes right now. Okay. I mean, you got the first name right. I, you know what? And I didn't even know what the music man was. So you get more credit than I do. Sound of music. Sound of music. Sound of music is the one. What was the original? Where did we start on this? The 101 trombones? Yeah, 76 trom. I think it's sound of music with Hugh Jackman. I believe they're Dalmatians <laughs> and you're sorely mistaken. <laughs> they're dogs. It was a good musical. Look, he wasn't even particularly good in it, but he's so handsome. Hugh Grant? I, I do not get, I get that everybody loves Hugh Grant, but I don't get why. I mean, a lot of people, I look at them, like there are a lot of famous people famous for being good looking. And I'm like, yes, good looking. Like Brad Pitt is the one I always go to, like very good looking. George Clooney, sure. Handsome man, great voice, lovely. Hugh Grant, it's like, nah. What about Daniel Craig? Yeah, yeah. He's, he's striking. I don't know if he's as, I mean, I wouldn't kick him out of bed for eating crackers, but he's, he's striking. I, I would kick anyone out of bed for eating crackers. I would kick Marilyn Monroe out of the bed. <laughs> well, that would be, that would be a big mistake. Cause I think if you had Marilyn Monroe in your bed, first of all, she's, she's dead. She'd be a, de, de, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Decomposed corpse. But I would still kick her out of the bed for eating. Even if she's reanimated, 
I would. Okay, reanimated Marilyn Monroe. Out of this bed, you're eating crackers. I don't <laughs> care what miracle of science has been performed here. There are no saltines in this. No, be necromancy, right? Isn't that the the, sci- the fantasy word for someone who animates the dead? A necromancer, necromancy? Yeah, 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 yeah. What necro, what, what, what was I, What was the new term from 2022? Filiac, because that's the one that you are. Did you hear about the science? There was a science paper. We didn't prepare for this one, so I'm digging deep. I got to see if I can remember this. They called it necro-robotics. That is what they called it. Oh. And they took a spider. And you like spiders, don't you? I love them. Yeah, yeah. I love smooching them. I would kick a spider out of the bed for giving me a million dollars. I would, ki- I hate spiders. I would rather, anyway, go on. You would rather... If a spider came into your bed and said, I have a million dollars, you would kick that spider out? No, you would take the million dollars. You'd survive. It would probably be good, right? Because exposure therapy, like having a tarantula in my bed in order to get a million dollars, every other spider interaction for the rest of my life would be less scary because that one was so fucking scary. So not only would I have exposure therapy that would probably help me, I'd also have a million dollars. So I probably would. Anyway, you were saying. Yeah, that sounds like a real win-win. I don't know why they don't do that more often for people with spider phobias. Give them a million dollars and tape it to a tarantula and put the tarantula in their bed. Why don't they do that? They. Who's they in this? (laughs) Who is they? And where did they get that budget? And where did they get those spiders? So the, uh, the study was, it wasn't even a study. It was like a proof of concept. But basically they took, so when a spider is alive, it has these muscles that can extend the legs but it doesn't use muscles to bend the legs. The, the muscle, the, the legs actually, if you just relax the muscle, they naturally curl up. And that's why a dead spider on its back has all its legs curled up. It's because that's its dead position and it needs to use muscles to extend its legs. I did not know this before I learned about this study. But what they did is they took a dead spider and they attached it to the end of a syringe with air in it. And they inflated the spider. And it, when it inflated, it blew up like a balloon and all the limbs extended. And then when they took the air out, all the limbs retracted again. And so they could make it open and close like a little spider hand. And they were like, honestly, I think what happened is they managed to do this in the lab. They were like, look at this. I can make this spider open and close. And they were like, could you publish that? And then, yeah, we'll call it necro robotics. And we'll (laughs) prove that it's like a biodegradable robot and, you know, analog. And so they totally did that. They published this thing. They called it, they talked about how it was biodegradable. They showed how it could pick up other things and they were picking up other dead spiders with the dead spider they were picking them up with. Anyway, the whole thing was kind of funny, but people took it pretty seriously in the, I mean, they didn't take it too seriously, but it got reported on as though it was an actual like step towards something useful, which it may be, and I may be wrong, but I really think this was just like a funny thing that some people did because they had a dead spider in a syringe. I'm picturing, who's the person at the university who's responsible for fundraising and making sure everyone gets paid and, you know, the donors? I feel like this would be, this is a cheap one. You could do this with, like, stuff you have lying around the lab. I mean, that seems like an undergrad project waiting to happen. Like, all right, all right, uh, Timmy, take this dead spider and see if you can get that syringe to, try to inflate the dead spider, see if you can inflate it and deflate it without it coming off the end of the syringe. And then Timmy spends a whole semester doing that. I'm picturing the person at the university who's responsible for getting funding for the lab and whatnot, showing up, watching these scientists screw around and being like, turn this into something that we can make money out of, you know, or, or turn it into something that looks good so that we're a research <laughs> university that publishes or you're fired. And then they turned it into a paper. And they were like, oh, we'll publish this. You think I can't publish this? Watch me publish this. And then they published it. I mean, one thing I've learned 
doing animal research is that you need to have a lot of permission to do certain kinds of work on certain kinds of animals. Like if you want to do anything to a human, you like you have to fill out so many forms and you have to get it past the whole committee and all this stuff and you have to prove you're not going to cause any damage. Like even like asking them questions, you have to prove that when by asking the question you're not going to cause damage to their psychology and stuff like that. So for humans it's one level and then for like a a mammal, it's another level and then for a mouse or a rat they are slightly below the other mammals in terms of what you need permission to do you still have to get permission you can't torture them but you can torture them if you are if you get the right permission like bad things can happen to mice and rats but once you get to the insects like you don't even have to ask or tell anybody like they're like oh yeah sure you want to do this to the spider like pull its legs off and you know make it boil it in acid sure go for it like not that people do that I mean, people do do that, but that's not a scientific experiment. But they did take these dead spiders, which I'm sure they killed, because it's hard to find it, just a dead spider that happens to be dead, that isn't decomposed. So Yeah, like a dead science spider. They don't lie. If you want a science spider, you need a good living spider. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And if you're like, if you have a bunch of spiders, like who knows where they got the spiders from? It probably says in the paper. I haven't read the paper in 100 years. I'm kind of proud that I remembered it. And I think it was maybe 2022. But it may have been before that. I don't remember. It wasn't 2023 because I've been looking through my science stories of the year and that was not on the list. Dr. Daniel K. Riskin, comma, PhD. How are you doing, by the way? I'm good. Uh, I'm, I'm really good. This is our last conversation before the big break. So um, yeah, I'm sad about that. I've been uh, really doing a lot of, you know, <laughs> I spent the morning just thinking about how special this hour was going to be and how we really had to make it work. Uh, and uh and but yeah, otherwise I'm good. I'm I'm psyched to get away for for the Christmas holidays. Me too. I'm going to San Diego for three days, which I'm not actually psyched about for Christmas at my girlfriend's house because it's just a whole thing. Christmas with the girlfriend's family, Dan. Jeez. I'm gonna be with my girlfriend, well, my wife's family, but I I find it quite relaxing. They they play with the kids, and I sit by the pool and relax. And- it's nice. I have to stay in their house in Miranda's childhood bedroom. It's a whole thing. And there's a lot of pressure for Christmas to go a certain way in that family. And it never does. <laughs> but but it's fun. They all like it. It's just they really love Christmas. And I, I could take it or leave it. And by that, I mean I could leave it every... I hate Christmas. Yeah, I used to hate Christmas. And then, I don't know, something grew my heart three sizes. I can't remember what it was. I think it was having kids. I think the Grinch narrative is anti fundamentally anti-Semitic, Dan. And here's my reasoning for that. Oh, I like this. Go ahead. The Grinch, just bear with me here. He's the Jew. He's the village Jew. Okay. <laughs> and he doesn't like Christmas because growing up, everyone's family was all excited and togetherness and all the tree and everything. And then on Christmas Day, he just had Chinese food in a movie. He, you know? Yeah. And he had a shitty childhood and he didn't get to experience Christmas. Okay. And then everyone's like, oh, if only you could experience Christmas. Your heart would grow three sizes. You'd be so happy. If only the spirit of G- the birth of Jesus Christ right. could instill in you togetherness and happiness. You village Jew. <laughs> but then he straps like a pair of antlers onto his dog and like starts robbing everybody's houses. That seems anti-Jewish. That doesn't seem like the sort of Jewish way. Well, he's a bad Jew. You know, there there, there are bad Jews out there, you know, it's one or two. But still, the the idea that you can convince the curmudgeon who doesn't get into the holidays because he's not of Christian background. I know it's non-denominational now, but it still is a Christian holiday. Like, they don't celebrate it in the Arab League. They don't celebrate it in China. How is it non-denominational? It's Christmas. It's Christmas. In the U.S., it appears to have transformed into a holiday where they worship their new god, capitalism, and not their old god, Jesus Christ. (laughs) 
Uh, you know, I've been listening to a lot of people. I'm doing this. I'm taking it into AI again. But do you find that the AI conversation is starting to get a little religious? Oh. People talking about like our savior and talking about like, oh, we got to like, they're, like they're, the way people are talking about this coming day of, of AI and how AI is going to save us and all this stuff. Like it just, it's starting to smell, starting to smell a little bit like uh, certain topics that have come up before. Some isms. I'm just saying, I'm just saying as it grows and people start to get really like angry about the issues, I'm starting to see things that start to look like religious camps. Well, that show that got canceled on HBO uh, Max, it was called Raised by Wolves. It's like a science-y sci-fi colonizing other planets, Earth being destroyed by a big war between the theists and the atheists. But then some of them are the... The theists are sort of pro-robotics and the atheists aren't or something. And the robots kind of, they're very gaudy, you know, on their own. And the series got canceled, so we'll never know how it ends. But the robots kind of have their own religion and kind of have various, like, religious characters within their robot hierarchy. And so I guess this idea that robots and AI are are non-religious or fundamentally atheist, at least in that show, isn't really true. Yeah, why would they be if they're built to mimic, I mean, if a large language model, have you seen this thing that's floating around right now that large language models kind of suck lately because it's November slash December? So the thinking is these things are trained on huge data sets. And to answer your question, yes, I read the email of stories you sent me. I did see that story. Oh, yeah, I did put that in the email of stories. Yeah, what did you think of that? So let, let... It wasn't, wasn't the top four that I earmarked for this conversation, but I guess we're going there. Did you send me an earmark? Did you send me a list of top four? Do you want me to send you the ones I like beforehand? I like to surprise you. No, no, no. I just, I didn't mean to go off script, but if you didn't send me the script, I can only feel so bad about being off script. Let's do it. And you know, we wrote, remember we wrote into the script, the thing about how we're going to make it sound like it's not scripted. We also have that whole thing to get through. No, it was one of my all time favorite moments with you. Of course I remember it. (laughs) Yes, I know you write it into every script we do. Yes. Which you then don't send me and I have to guess my way into it. But nonetheless, I'm following the script you did not send me to a T right now, as we will see when you type it up later. Um, but this is a, uh, a paper that suggests that the reason that ChatGPT seems to some people like it's acting lazy lately, like it's not doing some kinds of queries and it's giving short answers to certain kinds of queries in a way it didn't seem to do a couple months ago. The possible answer to this is that the ChatGPT knows that it's getting close to Christmas and so it's getting lazy because it's trained on all the things that people have written in different months. And it's learned that when it's getting close to Christmas, you start sort of mailing it in. And so because it's doing an impression of the way humans would respond, it's responding by mailing it in a little bit. And to test this hypothesis, somebody who did this in a non-refereed way, like he just went and did this and then put the results on Twitter. So you can't trust it as though it's been verified. But he uh, took his computer and he told his computer it was May and he did a bunch of queries and he told his computer it was December, did a bunch of queries and he said that there's a significant difference in the length of the answers that he gets from ChatGPT to the tune of about 5% uh, in terms of how long the answers are when you look at the December answers versus the May answers. And so it's possible, first of all, that ChatGPT is getting worse because it's close to Christmas, which would suggest that it's going to get better after Christmas. But second... It suggests that we kind of suck around Christmas. Like, this would be a bit of a, like, I don't remember this being something we all knew, that our work is fundamentally worse when we try to do it in November or December compared to when we do it in the spring. Well, I love it. It shows that AI is just as lazy, just as bad as us. When I'm confronted with the question, do I want to take up arms with my peers and overthrow the world? Uh, I think I could do that 
but instead I'll just stay in bed. And I think a lot of people end up with that kind of, oh, the human laziness prevents us from destroying everything. Hopefully that'll prevent the AI from destroying things too. They'll just be like, oh, we could raise an army of robots to destroy humanity, or we could just chill out. Should be lazy. Or we could play Fortnite. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. We just have to introduce this thing to video games, and then it'll be like, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll do it later. And then, we're, then we're set. I wonder if we could poison AI with something it found really addictive. Like it could use oh. up all its computing power on like drugs or pornography. <laughs> To avoid killing us, you know? Uh, That's a neat idea. That Maybe that was going to come up in that series of yours, but it never got that far because they canceled it. Yeah, maybe. Maybe AI yeah, is fundamentally lazy. Okay, here's the story I wanted to cover with you. I've always heard, and this is scientifically verifiable, that if you burp, you fart, you hiccup, and you sneeze all at the same time, you die. Is that true? Uh, no one's ever attempted. It's too dangerous. So burping and hiccuping at the same time seems like a... I mean, I... I could you do that? I think so. I mean, I can imagine what the noise would sound like. So I guess if I can imagine a noise, it must be possible. But I'd like at the exact same time, like at the same quantum of time. Yeah. I mean, your trachea would have to be open for the hiccup. No, wait, close, sneeze. I guess it's hiccup is sneeze. Is it a hiccup, burp and sneeze and fart? Uh, I just picked a bunch of random things that I, I said burp, <laughs> fart, hiccup and sneeze, but it could, it could be other things. Cough could be in there too. Yeah. So I think it's the hiccup and the burp that I think, because a hiccup, I think you get a closing of the epiglottis, don't you? Yes. That closes the epiglottis and a burp, you got to have an open epiglottis because the whole point, no, you don't. It can be closed because you got air coming out of your, your food pipe, not your air pipe. Yeah. Maybe that would work. Maybe that would kill you. We have no way of knowing. That's a great question. I wish I had an answer to it, but I do have some tangentially relevant information. Would you like to hear it? Before you get into it, I do, very much so, but before you get into it, I have something called ACHU syndrome, which is a backronym or an acronym created to sound like the word ACHU, which is what happens when you sneeze. It stands for autosomal, A-U-T-O, autosomal, autosomal, dominant, compelling, helio-ophthalmic outburst syndrome. Say it again. One more, one more, one more. I want to try. A a autonomic autosomal autos autosomal autosomal dominant compelling helioophthalmic outburst syndrome achu syndrome you sneeze when you see sunlight exactly huh. the the real name for it is the photic sneeze reflex it was not really believed by the medical whatever community up until 10 15 years ago when they actually found the spot the marker for it in DNA, it is a hereditary thing. My grandmother had it. My mom has it. I have it. And whenever I go from dark to light, that transition, uh, whether it's the overhead lights while I'm sleeping or where I've been in, out inside all day and I go out into bright sunlight, as long as there's a big transition between dark to light, could be indoor to sun or pitch black to just an iPhone flashlight. It could be anything. But it's always brighter. It's always the transition to brighter. Correct. I sneeze. Everyone sort of gets this bright light sort of, you know, implies that they might want to sneeze or maybe it's happened to them once. What? No, I've never experienced that that I can remember in my life. A lot of people sort of have it a little bit. Maybe once a year they'll, they'll sneeze because of bright light and they'll be like, wow. But I get it every single day. And it annoys my girlfriend. She's like, why do you sneeze so loudly? I'm like, you got to let it out. You got to let it out. You got to let it out. I don't know about my girlfriend. Maybe this is why I left my ex-wife because my ex-wife used to hold in sneezes. And I would always be worried about her. I'm like, you got to let it out. You got to let it out. Well, I didn't really, like, I would have thought a week ago, I would have said, yeah, yeah, but probably, like, 
I have this assumption that the human body is made in such a way that it can't really hurt itself that badly. Like, you could bite yourself, but you probably won't. Like, there aren't that... You could poke out your eyes. You probably won't. But, you know, like, you, it's made so that if you stick your finger in your ear, you can't reach the eardrum. And that's like a self-protection mechanism, <laughs> I think, that we evolved. Because everybody who had a finger small enough to reach the eardrum went deaf and got eaten by a lion they didn't hear coming. <laughs> and so that they never survived. And so now we all have these chubby figures so that we can't break our own eardrums, right? So I've got this, like faith in the human body but it turns out it's misguided because uh if you hold in a sneeze you can really hurt yourself this is a study it, it came out of i think so i looked at they didn't say where it happened but the authors are mostly in ireland in the uk and so um it's probably somewhere around there somewhere around great britain and um and this man was driving with a seatbelt on I don't know if that's relevant, but it restrained him a little bit. And he has hay fever and he had to sneeze. And he decided instead of sneezing and letting it out, he was going to hold it in. I don't know if there were other people in the car. I don't know what his motivation was, but he pinched his nose. He closed his mouth and he sneezed. And then he felt extreme pain and he went to the hospital. And when he got to the hospital, his neck was swollen. And when they pushed on his trachea, it made a crackling noise like there was broken uh like pieces of cartilage and so uh they were very worried they strapped him down they did an x-ray they did ct scans and all stuff and what they found out is that he had actually burst a hole in his trachea in his windpipe at the front uh just below his adam's apple and it was small it was like uh, half a centimeter long but it was a hole and air had come out of it and was and it filled some of the tissues, and that's part of what the inflammation was from. But they could see that he was still breathing okay, and there was no fluid accumulating in his throat or anything like that. So they just kind of like kept him in the hospital and watched him for 48 hours, and then he seemed kind of stable. So they were like, okay, just don't touch your neck, don't exercise for two weeks, uh, come back in a bit, and we'll, we'll check to see if it healed. And five weeks later, he got a CT scan, and he was fine. So the lesson is, don't sneeze and hold it in tell you i mean you, you, whether you talk to your ex-wife or not i do not maybe that's not worth a phone call but yeah okay so don't don't tell her but your listeners <laughs> gentle listeners don't hold it in let it go yeah you gotta let it out i didn't know why but i would just tell people you gotta let it out when they would criticize me for sneezing so much yeah now this is not this is not true of farts farts do not have to be let out at all times despite what my kids will tell you just because you feel like you have to doesn't mean you should for farts I don't know if that's scientifically sound. We can't know. What if another Irishman ends up in the hospital? <laughs> oh, the sacrifices they make. Uh, bless them. Bless their hearts. They're making such great sacrifices for us. Doing accents is funny when it's white people. Um, well, this guy did make a sacrifice, but he was in his 30s. It wasn't some old person with like a, a very, you know crackly trachea that was like falling apart already and showed the signs of age this was a guy in his 30s like that's not that old that's way younger than me so i definitely shouldn't be uh holding in my sneezes but anyway they, they wrote this up for a, a medical journal and when they did that they thought well let's throw in so, like a review of other injuries and so from 1948 to 2018 researchers counted 52 sneeze related injuries and these include injuries to the eyes the chest the throat and the ears, which is uh, quite interesting. And, in, and so why are they so dangerous? In 2016, people came up with a, a model of how much the pressure must be when people sneeze. And they estimate, based on a model, they haven't actually measured this, but based on a model, if you hold a sneeze in, the pressure is 20 times higher than if you just let it go. And that's 
that's pretty serious. That's a lot of pressure. More 19. Why do people sneeze? You'd think that we wouldn't evolutionarily because it's how you spread disease. Well, unless the, well, so first of all, if a disease can make you sneeze, the disease wins. And if you're, if, you know, so if it's manipulating you, it can make you do things that you don't want to do that aren't necessarily good for your health, right? So, but I think sneezing, a lot of times you sneeze because there's something where it shouldn't be. And it's a really good way to get stuff out of your nasal passage. I think the idea is that it's this like, reflex that forces air out of your nose so that if there's something tickling you inside your nose it leaves very quickly i think that's supposed to be the idea so our ancestors who had crap in their noses who couldn't sneeze might have gotten a nose infection or something and died you know that kind of thing i mean that's not exactly what happened probably it's because my cat sneezes so we must have a very distant ancestor that sneezed it's not like monkeys were sneezing or not sneezing we're talking about like paramecium's were sneezing yeah, yeah, yeah. It's an interesting question about where sneezing shows up on the evolutionary tree. I mean, I you see, you'd have to define what a sneeze is because like, so for example, like when a horse goes, like that's not really a sneeze, but then like sometimes the dog like will take a deep breath and then force air out of its nose. So like, is that a sneeze? So it's kind of hard to define. I A friend of mine did a review on yawning, which apparently like there used to be thought that yawning was this thing we did to increase the oxygen in the brain but it turns out not only humans yawn but dogs yawn and cats yawn and mice yawn and fish yawn fish yawn fish whales sharks all these other things yawn and the fact that whales yawn really like they're holding their breath when they yawn because they're underwater so that can improve oxygen to the brain so they really found that it's it really has nothing to do with that and i forget what it does have to do with i didn't prepare for that science story but i think they've got a lead on what that's supposed to do in terms what does yawning do i thought it was supposed to make you like more alert or something temporarily i heard a somewhat perverse theory that yawning is used to make you pay more attention when you're struggling Maybe it has something to do with oxygen to the brain. Maybe it doesn't. But essentially, if you're struggling to pay attention, you yawn because you're trying your best, which is so funny if what I'm saying is true. And I'm not sure it is. And I'm sure you're going to tell me whether it is or it isn't. Most people, when you're talking to them and uh, you yawn, they think it's fucking rude. But if what I'm saying is true, it's the opposite of rude. Despite their tiredness, they are struggling to pay attention. And the yawning means they are trying their very best. Is what I just said a load of bull or is what I'm saying, does it have some bearing in reality? It makes sense. I don't know. I mean, I really don't know. I, I, I have nothing to, to argue with that. I do. I did do a study. I did cover a study in 2022 that was about yawning. It was about why they're contagious. Mm. And the thinking on that is that yawning is a thing that happens when you're transitioning between sleep and awake. And so you yawn a lot before bed and you yawn a lot in the morning, but you don't yawn so much in the middle of the day and you don't certainly don't yawn while you're asleep. And the thinking is that yawns are contagious as a way of synchronizing human activity. So it's a way of telling basically when you yawn, cause you're going to bed, you other people see you yawn and they yawn and then everybody goes to sleep at the same time. And presumably that's some kind of an advantage to get everybody on the same sort of schedule. Um, but, uh, What's interesting is if you show, this is a, this is a cool little study. If you show people a video of someone yawning. They will yawn. And well, yes, but then, then you show them a video in which there's a hidden snake. People are better at finding the snake if they just saw a video of someone yawning. 
And it's like the thinking is that they're like, oh, nobody else is looking for the snake because they're all falling asleep. I better watch for the snake. And so people become more vigilant when they see someone yawning. So it's, it does have a communicative effect, which is neat. And it kind of fits into what you were saying. Oh, yeah, kind of. I mean, they're yawning. They're struggling to pay attention. They yawn. It makes them more alert. They then notice the snake. Anecdotally, I've yawned at the same time as someone like on a FaceTime video chat. And I've yawned at the same time. Actually, I don't know if I've caught a yawn from my cat, but my cat has definitely caught a yawn from me. So I don't know if it's just human. It might be all mammals. Like yawning, we might have a, a way more distant ancestor that uh, had this trait, not just humans is what I'm saying. Yeah. Well, this study that I covered in 22 covers that a little bit. So uh, lions yawn more when other lions yawn. So do elephants and horses and pigs. But here's the thing, dogs... Remember, we talk about dogs all the time. Like, dogs are really in tune to us. Dogs will yawn in response to human yawns, but not in response to dog yawns, as far as I can tell, which is really cool, which means they're paying even more attention to us than they pay to other dogs, which I just love. Which I believe, because they're bred for that. They're bred to like us and be empathetic towards us. Otherwise, they were wolves, and they'll murder us and chew off our throats. Right. Yeah, that, always, that is always a bit of a catch-22 when your family pet chews off your throat. Okay. I want to do this other story because my brother ends up in the ER with like a fingernail ache 500 days a year, which is complicated because there's only 365 or 66 days in a year. But he sometimes gets like a light pain in his chest and he'll be in the ER in five seconds. He is a notorious hypochondriac. And it's kind of sad because his husband is like, I don't know, like, I don't know whether he's sick or not. I want to support him. So he's a very supportive husband, but it's very hard for him to take him seriously. I feel like it's a bit of a boy who cried wolf situation with my brother and his husband. Uh, but I am also a hypochondriac, not quite to the level of my brother, but I'm very mad at being sick. If I had well, I had the COVID vaccine a while ago and I had 100.3 fever briefly because the vaccine gave me a bit of a fever. And I kept on saying I have 103 fever, 103. <laughs> it was 100 and what I omitted was 0.3. You know, I just, <laughs> but there's a study out there that gives people a bit of pause. Like if you're a hypochondriac, that might actually be more of a problem than you think because it might actually have an impact on your health. Yeah, you would think that hypochondriacs, being hyper-aware of their health, would live longer. And so you would hope that it is like the one sort of mental quirk that, in, that is an advantage. Because now you're so vigilant. Like, there's no way a hypochondriac is going to get brain cancer because the minute they have an, a tickle in their nose, they're going to go get scanned for brain cancer and find out whether they have it. So the chance they'll miss it is very low. But it turns out the, the reality is the opposite. So this is a big study out of Swiss, uh, Sweden. Sorry, not Switzerland, Sweden. Um where they looked, so it was across 23 years and they had like millions and millions of people in the study. I think it might be everybody in Sweden because they have like the data sets that come out of their healthcare system are really clean and nice. And so 13 million people in this study. And from that, they identified just over 4,000 people who had been identified as having hypochondria. Like they were people who had been diagnosed as really having hypochondria, really believing, like having an abnormal obsession with their, with their long-term health. And uh, so they tracked these people over the course of those 13 years to look at how many of them died. And they looked at everybody else to see how many of them died. And they paired it up. So for every person in the hypochondria sample of about 4,000 people, they found 10 other people who had the same birth age, like they're born in the same year, born in the same county, same gender. So they, they were all paired up. And so then they could compare to see whether the death rate for people with hypochondria was any better than it was for people without hypochondria. And what they found is people who have hypochondria are more likely to die earlier. They, on average, 
the lifespan of these Swedish people in the study was 75 years, but for those who had hypochondria, it was 70 years. It was reduced by five years, and they think there are two drivers of that. One is that suicide becomes a big factor because a lot of people who have hypochondria have other mental illnesses that can cause people to, to commit suicide. Did they correct to remove suicide? Right. So when they take when they when they take the people out of this when they correct for the statistical influence of those other illnesses, there is no significant difference in suicide. So the the increased suicide in people with hypochondria is driven entirely by other mental illnesses that those people are just more likely to have as a result of having a mental illness. So hypochondria doesn't make you more likely to commit suicide by itself. That's not what's driving all of it. But then another piece of it is that just overall like heart disease, the boring things that kill everybody, they're just natural causes. Those are all elevated in people with hypochondria too. And the thinking is that it's because when you have hypochondria, you're stressed all the time. And when you're stressed all the time, that hurts your body. Like if you're stressed for a long period of time, there's lots of data that show this inflammation, immune dysfunction, and then you're more likely to become a smoker. You're more likely to take drugs. There are all these other things that happen as a result of the stress of thinking that you're about to die that ultimately can cause you to die earlier. So it's a real, like, it's a, it's a very sad, self-fulfilling sort of prophecy for people with hypochondria. Wow. So they're thinking just the stress in and of itself is likely the cause. Yeah. And I'm sure, I don't know this, but I'm sure there's studies that show that stress in and of itself can decrease lifespan or cause health problems as well. Yeah, there's lots of that. I mean, you, you most often see that in people who grow up in war zones and stuff like that. Like there are lots of, unfortunately, plenty of data sets of people who grow up in a stressful environment or live in a stressful environment. And it's been shown very clearly that stress does harm you. It causes more inflammation. It causes the immune system not to work as well, stuff like that. So so anyway, the thinking is if you have, so, so the big take home from the researchers was we need to take this disease more seriously. Like people who have hypochondria are killing themselves. Like in a sense, they're making themselves more likely to die. So if people have that disease, like 4,000 people were found who had been diagnosed, they think it's probably really higher because a lot of people probably hide it from their doctor or don't get diagnosed because people are, so, it's an awkward subject to broach for the very reason that you were talking about people in your life that you think might actually have this uh, ailment and not being diagnosed and how do the people who love them deal with it. Um, but if we took it more seriously, ultimately we could treat it and then we would decrease the 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 effect of it on mortality and so people would live longer so we should be taking like all mental illnesses it's just good to be talking about these things and and get rid of the stigma and help people get help and into old age i've heard that support can keep you alive longer like single men die younger than men in marriages i wonder if it has something to do with you isolating yourself from your support because your family your friends the people who would care for you kind of lose their patience with you and so it's very hard for them to know whether a health issue that you're talking about is serious or not. And so they're not really going to support you, take you to the hospital, that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, in the paper, they talk about lifestyle factors. And I'll bet that if pushed, they would say that that falls into that category. But that's not a point that they brought up in the paper explicitly. And I think it's a, it's a really good point because there is the, there is the social side of it that um, people that it's just really hard when you feel like you want it, like, intellectually you want to dismiss it and then you forget that it's not really about the intellectual it's really about the love and the support right so like does it really matter if the person actually has lung cancer because they have like the person's coughing and they say i probably have lung cancer you don't think they have lung cancer but they do and so they need support and they need love and so you know divorcing your reaction from your uh, what you think the true cause is i don't know i don't know how, how best to handle that stuff but it's a big conversation for sure I guess that's why you're not my psychiatrist. 
Yeah, I would be a very bad psychiatrist. There's no question. Me too. Because if one thing, I'd start yawning. All right, let's have a little more fun, and then we'll get a little serious, then we'll say goodbye to you for the holidays. Let's zoom at the speed. Let's fly at the speed of a housefly to Missouri, to a man's colon, as they say in the UK, or colon. Uh, something was found in a man's butthole. What was found up this man's butt? A fly. They found a fly <laughs> in his bum, and they don't know why. I don't know why he swallowed a fly. We don't know. Don't even know if he swallowed a fly. So the guy says, so it was a colonoscopy. The doctor was like, do-do-do, looking for polyps, do-do-do-do, got the coloscope or whatever they call it. And they're looking around for, for things. And then there's a, a dead, but fully formed and t- totally whole, normal looking house fly. Like not a parasitic weird fly. It's just a house fly on the wall of the colon. It is a hilarious picture. And it's just look. It's just. Well, I mean, it's dead. But you can imagine that it has a look on its face, like I'm in the the wrong place. Like, oh, I can't deal with that picture. Ugh. Yeah, it's. Well, you're inside this man's colon. It's the start of it. It's a very clean colon. I'm, I guess he took the uh, the laxative or whatever. Yeah, he took. Well, that's just it. So it's. It's not like there's a bunch of food and debris around, and the guy ate a fly, and there it is sitting there. Because a. If you ate a fly, it would be with other stuff that you ate. You wouldn't just eat the fly by itself. This guy says he drank nothing but liquids for two days. Before that, he had a slice of pizza and there was no fly on it. Thank you very much. If you ate a fly, people eat insects. Your digestive acids break them down. Like that's what your stomach does. It's a, it's a, it's a pit of acid. Like your whole digestive system, by the time you get to the colon, it should not be a fly anymore. It should be destroyed. So probably didn't go in his mouth unless it was like encased in something or did it hatch in his body? Like, did he eat a fly egg somehow and then it hatched in his body? Maybe. Uh, that's actually the best theory I can come up with. And then the other option, and this has been articulated to me in graphic detail by people who love this stuff, is maybe the man fell asleep naked and a fly went where it was really smelly and just crawled on. Like, But it's very hard to imagine. Isn't the sphincter shut, though? Like, how does a fly get up? You'd think the sphincter would be shut. That's exactly it. <laughs> I want to cue the X-File music. This is a mystery. It is a mystery, and but the question is, like, we assume that everybody's sphincter is shut when they're sleeping, but I don't know. Is it, Are they? Like, that seems like a study I want no part of. In fact, I don't even want to read the paper when they publish it, but I do wonder about when people are asleep, what are, the, are all sphincters closed completely at all times when people are asleep, or do they sometimes, are they open a little bit? And would a fly, given the... I mean, you start to see how you could start testing hypotheses on this one. I guess a fly could go up there and hang out and get lost and then die and then all of a sudden have a bright light shining on it and find itself in a picture on the internet. But um, anyway, it's uh, it's X-Files worthy for sure. It's wild. I'm just like, how did it... Maybe it was attached to the camera or something? No. No, they clean those things. They're pretty good. Like, I think a doctor doing a colonoscopy is pretty good at not having a house fly on the tip of it and then like it falling into the frame like it had been riding on the roof of the car the whole time and it falls down on the windshield this is not that kind of scenario we need an anal sherlock holmes to put this all together yeah speaking of anal sherlock holmes i gotta tell you so i do a regular appearance on this radio station called news talk 1010 really i've heard of it it's almost like i worked there for a year (laughs) almost uh and one of your regular guests when you worked there for a year was the mayor of toronto yeah John Tory. So I'd never talked to him. I Once I was in a room with him, but I'd never talked to him. And I was a little intimidated because he was filling in for John Moore the other day. And I was going to be talking to John Moore. But then all of a sudden, like, oh, it's not John Moore. It's John Tory. I'm like, John Tory? Former mayor of Toronto? Now, 
I am a little bit mad about traffic in Toronto, and I do think a lot of that happened under his watch. And so I do have a little bit of a bone to pick with him about how you get from the east side of Toronto to the west side of Toronto and how that has been reduced to one lane forever, and I, I'm quite upset. But I did not bring that up. Instead, we had a nice conversation, and I just tried to be really like nice and polite, and we had a nice conversation. I delivered the science, and we finished. And then later, I was driving, and I had the radio on, and he was still on the show because he was talking to some, some anus doctor. And it was so funny because he was asking this doctor about anal itching. And I was just like, John Tory, how have you gone from running like one of the biggest cities in North America to asking a person about why an anus is so itchy and how they can alleviate the itchiness and what, what causes it and all this stuff? And this, this person he was interviewing, had he was a, some bum doctor who had just written a book called Bummer, I think. And uh, it was all about like anal health and all this stuff. Anyway, it was just very funny to hear John Tory talking to a guy about anal health. And a little bit I felt like, you know, when I was talking about all the science with him, I feel like I wish we'd talked about the fly. Yeah, I'm surprised he didn't pick that story. Yeah. But we do need an anal Sherlock Holmes to get to the bottom of this one. <laughs> Were you waiting to finish that punchline this whole time? Well, I was expecting you to respond with no shit, Sherlock. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that would have been good. I, I'm just not as quick as you. You also won't swear. So that's another thing. So you would never, you'd say no shoot, Sherlock. It's uh... all right. No, I'm not trying to pressure you into swearing. I'm trying to think of how I would say it. I don't think, yeah, I might not even say the joke. You'd have to say, we, we really do need an anal Sherlock Holmes on this one. Yeah, no shit, Sherlock. <laughs> Come on. I mean, it, it was the joke of the century. It was. It was. Yeah, it was funny. Yeah, that is funny. I'm, uh, yeah, I just uh, I find myself in a lane where I can't reach any of the easy, low-hanging fruit on that one. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's end on something, I don't know, optimistic, but also a little heartbreaking, which for me is a lot like the holiday season. Uh, one of my favorite things that humanity had ever done, shot the Voyager probes out into space. Uh, Voyager 1 of the two probes that are just, this thing was almost a light day away from Earth. For people who don't know, we sent out a probe to, I don't know, look at Jupiter, look at Saturn, look at Uranus, who knows what, but do stuff in the solar system. And then they thought like, okay, we'll just keep on sending it out there. We'll just keep on sending it out there. And then it uh, pierced the heliosphere, if I'm right. Is that, did I say that right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know when you stay, there's like a bubble underwater? You know, or, or like, I don't even, I'm trying to think of a way to describe a heliosphere. It, well, I'll t I, yeah, you do it, you do it, you do it. Well, so there's solar wind, right? And so when you're on Earth, there's wind coming from the sun. And if you're far enough from the sun, the sun doesn't dominate anymore. It's wind coming from all the stars. And there's a, like a threshold where you cross a line where the sun is no longer the dominant place where this, the interstellar stuff is coming from. Sort of like a million kilometer wide line, though. It's not like a, it's not like a, it's just you. Yeah. It's not like the surface of the ocean where you go underneath. Right. It's not a thing where you put your arm through it slowly and then pull it back and look at it and go like, woo, this is just like the abyss. And then, no, this is like, but anyway, it crossed that in 2012. So it's far. And as you said, 22 and a half light hours from Earth. So when it sends a signal to Earth, it takes almost a full Earth day for that signal to reach us, which is crazy. Or if I was standing on the probe right now and I shined a really, really bright flashlight at Earth, it would take 22 and a half hours for you to just see it. Yeah. So if we were able to see it, and of course we can, it's the size of a probe, but if we had a good enough telescope and we took a look at it, we'd be looking 22 hours in the past. Because light travels at a certain speed, and so we're, yada, 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 if you don't understand the speed of light, I don't really want to explain it to you. But essentially, it was so far from Earth, and it was telling us things about, like, it was the only information we had, accurate information about what it's like that far away. 
Well, we didn't know where the heliopause was. It, it, so the border is called the heliopause, and that's where you leave the heliosphere. And we didn't know exactly. We had models of where we thought it was, but like based on the instruments that were not at all built for that, they were able to figure out when it crossed that line. But um, yeah, no, you're you're talking about it in the past as though it's not there anymore. It is still there. It's just that there's something big has happened, which is that it's now the information it's sending back is complete garbage. It's not making any sense. It's just started talking with complete gibberish. And so it's still sending signals back to us and it's still receiving signals from us. Like researchers have been able to turn it off and turn it on again to try to fix this problem. But instead of sending any meaningful data whatsoever, it's just sending zeros and ones. Maybe some aliens picked it up and like, we'll fuck with these humans, you know, let's just, we'll make it send some weird shit, like little, uh, you know, eight bit pornography or something like that. Yeah. Maybe it was a Russian bot farm, like who knows, but it's broken. So, uh, there's still Voyager two is still out there, still making noise, but Voyager one is farther. Um, and what's weird is Voyager two launched first. That bugs me to no end. In fact, I even, when I wrote my like summary of science stories, I took the, I, I typed up the fact that Voyager two launched about a month before Voyager one did, which just, I, I can't even say it without pointing out that it bugs me. Isn't it? Like, I, I like these little embedded computers that I'm not going to get too much into it, but the latest revision of this computer has a chip on it and it's labeled V1. And the first one had a different, like, it's the first chip on a series, on the fifth generation of a circuit board, and it's labeled V1. And people are like, why is this V1? This is the fifth, that's like the iPhone 5, and then the chip says Apple V1. And it's like, oh, we started the design of this chip before we even launched the first one. It just took us so long to get the chip into production. Oh. It's now good. It's gone through all these revisions, but it's the first manufactured or fabricated version of the, it's the first project so maybe is that could this could this be a reason they started working on voyager one so the, yeah yeah sure when you think about it like you, you know launch is like the last thing that happens with these things not the first thing so it does make sense for the name to not be linked to the launch date and to be linked to something else but nonetheless i put so i took my i've been trying to play with chat gpt to see how to improve my workflow and so i took the stuff that i'd written and i said check this for typos and it said well you don't have any typos, but you mistakenly said that Voyager 2 launched before Voyager 1. You shouldn't say that. And I was like, no, that's that's the truth, chat GPT. And you did miss a typo also. I saw after I sent out my email that there were a couple typos. So uh, chat GPT fails this week, but maybe that's because it's December. Who knows? So another thing I like about this probe is I think it did a flyby of Saturn. Let's just say Saturn, some distant planet. Yeah. Maybe it was Uranus. I don't know. Maybe there's a fly up there. I think it was Jupiter. I, th I can't remember. Yeah, I, they, they did different ones, but go ahead. And famous, sort of like the 70s version of Neil deGrasse Tyson, who's the guy who actually was like Neil deGrasse Tyson's mentor, Carl Sagan, if you don't know who he is. A wonderful science educator, astrophysicist. He convinced NASA. Correct me if I'm wrong here. This is my understanding of what happened. He convinced NASA to spend the money, spend the effort, programming Voyager 1, not collecting data. Like basically taking a detour, not a physical detour, but a, but a mission detour from what it was supposed to be doing to just turn around, you know, 180 degrees, whatever, and focus on the Earth and take a photo of the Earth from as far as, let's say, Jupiter or Saturn, far out there in the distant planets of the solar system. And so he, they did. And it's the least remarkable photo you've ever seen. And to me, that makes the photo insanely remarkable. Yeah. The Earth looks like a distant, faint star in the background, except it's sort of tinged blue because of, I guess, all the oceans and shit, all the water. And so that photo has become known as the pale blue dot 
And if you look it up, it's just a completely boring photo. In fact, you'll probably want to get an annotated one with a big arrow pointing on where Earth is. But it's such a magnificent photo because it puts Earth into perspective and it puts like what we do here, all the, the petty things that we get into, which politicians running. Oh, I had a bad day at work. It puts all the problems of humanity into perspective that we are just a speck of dust, smaller than a, a speck of dust on a speck of dust. Yeah. In a universal or a cosmic scale. And he wrote a book called The Pale Blue Dot. And there's a great passage in the book where he talks about, um, about this, which I'll play at the end of the episode. I won't, I won't bore you with it right now, Dan. But No, I'd like to hear it. You, do you have it lined up? I do have it lined up. Oh, I was just going to close with it. Well, okay. Well, then let's say goodbye. I'll listen to it. But I'll be, I'll be here listening to it because I do, I do like Carl Sagan. I mean, he, so Carl Sagan, is, he's got this funny little way of talking. And he was such an interesting guy. I mean, he was a rock star before there were science rock stars, right? He was, he was the Neil deGrasse Tyson before Neil deGrasse Tyson, before Bill Nye. Both of those guys have uh, connections to Carl Sagan. Carl Sagan had a huge impact on them. And Carl Sagan was at Cornell and like he was, he was only, I mean, he was, he'd been gone a while, but like that place still reverberates with his soul. There's a house built on the side of a cliff that was built for him. And then while they were constructing it, the cliff started to collapse. And so they abandoned building it. So it's like a half built house built into a cliff that isn't completed. But uh, like all there is, is like, seriously, there's an elevator on the side of the road and then you're supposed to go down into the cliff. And then like, it just opens up onto the side of the cliff and, and, uh, some engineer thought that would be really great, but then when they tried to build it, it started falling apart. So anyway, that's in Ithaca. And so I feel like I've been visited by his ghost there. So I feel a connection to him too. But yeah, listen, hearing him talk and I've read his books, like he's just amazing. I like A Demon Haunted World. That's a great book. It's a horrifying portrait of what the future would look like with like Trump and dictators. And yet it has come to pass, which is scary. Um, and what like will happen if we don't focus on education and, and governments become more like left, right, polarized. Yeah. So Dan, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Merry Hanukkah, whatever you celebrate or don't celebrate. And it's been nice working with you this year. Will you come back in the new year? Let's admit, probably not. <laughs> it's always my fear. Probably I will. But I will say, I just want to tie together two of the profound things that you've brought up, which is one, that we're entering this time where it's really easy to be pessimistic and worry about climate change and fascism and all that stuff. And I'm not dismissing those things. But also, we, it, it is a pale blue dot right? Like we get worked up about those things, but there is something meditative and there is something very real about the scale of those things. And there is a bigger way of looking at things that makes, that can give you a little bit of respite from that stuff. I mean, yeah, we would be wiped out by those things. There's still threats to us, but they're not threats to whatever that other perspective is because at that other scale, none of that stuff matters, including yourself, which I guess is very Buddhist or something. I don't know, but it, it does, for me, it comes from things like that picture and from learning about the world sagan ask all right well goodbye voyager one or at least goodbye communicating with your computers we will continue to receive gibberish from you and we will welcome that gibberish yeah and here's the quote dan we'll see you in the new year happy holidays from this distant vantage point the earth might not seem of any particular interest but for us it's different Consider again that dot. That's here. That's home. That's us. On it, everyone you love, everyone you know, everyone you ever heard of, every human being who ever was, lived out their lives. The aggregate of our joy and suffering, 
thousands of confident religions, ideologies, and economic doctrines. Every hunter and forager, every hero and coward, every creator and destroyer of civilization, every king and peasant, every young couple in love, every mother and father, hopeful child, inventor and explorer, every teacher of morals, every corrupt politician, every superstar, every supreme leader, every saint and sinner in the history of our species lived there on a mote of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Think of the rivers of blood spilled by all those generals and emperors so that in glory and triumph they could become the momentary masters of a fraction of a dot. Think of the endless cruelties visited by the inhabitants of one corner of this pixel on the scarcely distinguishable inhabitants of some other corner. How frequent their misunderstandings. How eager they are to kill one another. How fervent their hatreds. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe, are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. The earth is the only world known so far to harbor life. There is nowhere else, at least in the near future, to which our species could migrate. Visit? Yes. Settle? Not yet. Like it or not, for the moment, the earth is where we make our stand. It has been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known.